Britain gets its third prime minister in two months. Rishi Sunak is 42 years old, the youngest prime minister in some 200 years. He was born in Britain and is the first practicing Hindu to lead the country. Sunak told his fellow Tory conservatives today it's time to unite or die. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the open Senate seat in Pennsylvania has led to one of the closest races in the country. Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Dr. Mehmet Oz face off tonight in their first and only debate. Most of the plastic Americans put in their recycling bins is not getting recycled. A great deal of that material is ending up in a landfill. It's going to a recycling facility and then being landfilled someplace else because they can't do anything with that material. Rectifying the plastic recycling problem coming up. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The United Kingdom is waiting to see if third time's a charm. Former Chancellor Rishi Sunak has become the third leader of the governing Conservative Party in seven weeks, once King Charles formally accepts Prime Minister Liz Truss's resignation. He is expected to appoint Sunak as head of His Majesty's government tomorrow. It is the greatest privilege of my life to be able to serve the party I love and give back to the country I owe so much to. Less than two months ago, Sunak was bested by Truss in the race to lead the Conservative Party, but with the U.K. facing rising inflation, Truss's government soon imploded over a tax cut plan that threw the markets into turmoil. At 45 days, Truss's tenure became the shortest in British history, and today history was made again when Sunak, a Hindu of South Asian descent, whose parents immigrated from East Africa to Britain decades ago, became the first person of color to become Prime Minister of Britain. Jury selection is underway in New York in the Manhattan criminal trial of former President Donald Trump's company. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports the court's casting a wide net in its search for 18 impartial jurors. Some 130 prospective jurors showed up for questioning in a trial that charges the Trump Organization engaged in a persistent pattern of fraud to pay less taxes on corporate benefits. Some jurors have already said it would be difficult for them to participate based on the trial's projected length of about six weeks. The rest are now being questioned individually by prosecutors. Former Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg already pleaded guilty to multiple fraud charges and is expected to be a major witness in this case against the company. Donald Trump is not a defendant in the criminal trial, though he does face a separate civil fraud case brought by the New York Attorney General. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Russian and Ukrainian leaders are accusing one another of standing in the way of Ukrainian grain exports on the Black Sea. There's a backlog of more than 150 ships waiting around Istanbul, Turkey. From Kiev, NPR's Yulian Haida reports that the diplomatic standoff comes as the countries are set to renegotiate terms of a deal to keep the grain flowing. Over the last month, Russian President Vladimir Putin has made all sorts of claims about Ukraine's grain exports, that the countries receiving grain aren't the ones who need it, or that Ukraine's supposed role in bombing the strategic Crimean bridge voids any diplomacy. Since July, Ukraine and Russia have agreed to let Turkish authorities ensure grain shipments safely leave Ukrainian seaports. That deal was only temporary, though. It's up for renegotiation in about a month, and Ukrainian authorities say that Russia is setting the stage to stop Ukrainian grain from reaching famine-stricken countries. Ukraine's agriculture ministry says it's only just been able to export enough to prevent last year's harvest from rotting. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The father of Harmony Montgomery has been charged with her killing. The girl from Manchester, New Hampshire, was last seen in 2019 when she was five years old. She wasn't reported missing for two years. Today, officials charged Adam Montgomery with second-degree murder for beating her and recklessly causing her death. Manchester Police Chief Alan Aldenberg spoke about honoring Harmony's memory. I knew no other way to respect and honor this innocent and defenseless child than to extend an act of kindness to another child in her memory. Just take a few moments out of your day to say something nice to a child. Give him or her a hug. Adam Montgomery is accused of falsifying evidence, witness tampering, and hiding or moving the girl's body. He'll be arraigned tomorrow. The Suffolk District Attorney will not seek a new trial against a man convicted of murder in the 1980s. DA Kevin Hayden's office made the announcement today. Joseph Pope was sentenced to life in prison after his conviction for the 1984 shooting death of Efren de Jesus. Earlier this year, the state Supreme Court ruled Pope should get a new trial because prosecutors failed to disclose certain evidence at the trial. Construction on the project that would bring Canadian hydropower through Maine and into Massachusetts remains on hold. A judge in Maine has rejected a request by the New England Clean Energy Connect to allow them to resume construction on a power line pending a lawsuit next spring. At issue is whether it was legal for Maine voters to reject the project after permits had been granted and construction had begun. The project calls for a 145-mile power line from Canada to Maine, where it will connect to the regional power grid. And the number of North Atlantic right whales has dropped to 340. An annual report released today by the North Atlantic Right Whale Consortium says there were only 15 calves born in 2022. That's down from 18 born last year. In the forecast, 61 degrees now, rain off and on, some thunderstorms over the next hour or so. Then tonight, cloudy, the chance of more rain on the mild side. Not too much chillier than it is right now, should be in the upper 50s tonight. Tomorrow, clouds once again, temperatures creeping toward the high 60s, and then more clouds ahead on Wednesday. 61 degrees now at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Milwaukee. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Rishi Sunak, Britain's former Chancellor of the Exchequer, will become the country's new Prime Minister. Sunak heads to number 10 Downing Street following a tumultuous period in which the country has had three Prime Ministers in less than two months. He spoke to lawmakers in his Conservative Party today. The United Kingdom is a great country, but there is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity. Sunak's ascent is history-making. He is the first person of colour to lead the British government, as NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from London. Sunak is the son of Indian immigrants who moved here from East Africa. At 42, he's also the country's youngest prime minister in more than two centuries. A former hedge fund manager with a degree from Stanford Business School, Sunak seems well-suited to address the country's challenging financial state. Bronwyn Maddox runs Chatham House, the London think tank. If you are reaching for silver linings, one is that the economic plight has forced someone with economic competence to the top of the conservative field. Sunak's political rise has been meteoric. 
He won a seat in Parliament only in 2015. Five years later, he landed the second most powerful job in the government, Chancellor, Britain's Treasury Secretary. During the pandemic, Sunak became a household name when he created a rescue package widely credited with saving thousands of businesses. Today, I can announce that for the first time in our history, the government is going to step in and help to pay people's wages. After Boris Johnson was forced from office last summer, Sunak ran for prime minister against Liz Truss. She called for unfunded tax cuts to help kickstart growth amid rising inflation and energy bills. Sunak said the country needed to start paying off the debt it had accumulated from helping people during the pandemic. Here he is in a debate with Truss. Uh, simply not right. You promised me. almost excuse 40 me. billion pounds of unfunded tax cuts, but 40 billion pounds more borrowing. That is the, company, the country's credit card. It's our children and grandchildren, everyone here is kids. Truss won and went ahead with her plan. Global financial markets rejected it. The pound collapsed, mortgage rates rose, and Truss resigned. Sunak grew up in a port city in the south of England. In this campaign video, he tells a familiar tale of an immigrant family, though from a professional class. My mum studied hard and got the qualifications to become a pharmacist. She met my dad, an NHS GP, and they settled in Southampton. And, he said, gave him opportunities they could only dream of. Sunak went on to study at Oxford University. In 2009, he married the daughter of one of India's richest men who co-founded an IT giant. Sunak came under fire when it was revealed his wife did not pay taxes on some of her foreign earnings. While perfectly legal, it was awkward given Sunak's job in the government. There has been some backlash to Sunak's run for prime minister. Over the weekend, a caller to LBC, London Talk Radio, questioned his patriotism. Boris has the best chance of winning the general election next time. Rishi's not going to win it. Rishi's not even British. He doesn't love England like Boris does. Sundar Katwala, who runs a think tank that studies views around race and identity, says this view is not typical. And Britons are becoming accustomed to seeing people of colour in top government jobs. In the last five years, we've seen ethnic minority chancellors of the Exchequer, Home Secretaries, foreign secretaries at uh, a remarkable pace. So everyone's got used to that, and everybody thinks you shouldn't make too much of that. In one sense, it's remarkable that the descendant of British colonial subjects will become the country's prime minister. But it also seems, as Katwala says, like a natural process. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. The Senate race in Wisconsin is one of a handful that could determine which party controls the U.S. Senate. Over the summer, incumbent Republican Ron Johnson looked vulnerable to a challenge by Democrat Mandela Barnes. But now, polling shows that Barnes is trailing Johnson, with just two weeks to go until Election Day. I sat down with Lieutenant Governor Barnes after a meet-and-greet with Latino voters in Milwaukee. And when I asked him about the momentum in this race, he didn't seem worried. Polls go up and polls go down. The last three November elections were all decided by 30,000 votes or fewer. We always knew this was going to be neck and neck. After that, we dug into the issues, starting with the Supreme Court's decision in June to overturn the constitutional right to an abortion. Well, 70 percent of people in Wisconsin think Roe should be the law of the land. And that's how out of touch and extreme Ron Johnson's position is. And he supported abortion bans that had no exceptions for rape, incest, or the life of the mother. And I've been, you know, my mother has been pretty open about her story, um, having a complicated pregnancy that, you know, she had to end. 
And it was her choice to make. Any woman should be able to make that choice. And Ron Johnson wants to take that away. Ron Johnson's America. My mother, women in very similar situations as her, don't get to make that choice. We recently had a Black Maternal Health Roundtable where there were a number of women who for the very first time uh, shared their stories about uh, complicated pregnancies, uh, some that had to be terminated. And they had never spoken about it before, but they had a chance to around each other. And also, given the urgency of this moment where we have politicians in office who want to take that choice away, which would have absolutely made their lives even more difficult. And then on top of that, for people who are uh, planning a family, Ron Johnson's against expanding the child tax credit. He is against funding for preschool programs. He's against school meal programs, the things that will make it easier for people to have uh, families that can have some sort of success. He voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And this is a lifeline for families that he wants to take it away. He wants to force people to give birth in a place where he does not want to provide them opportunity. And that's disqualifying. I want to turn now to the economy, which is obviously something that's affecting every person in this country. Inflation has been unrelenting. We have seen the stock market decline. What do you think, if you were elected, what can be done to help families who are feeling the brunt of those issues? Well, there are a couple of things we got to do. One, we got to give working families some relief in the immediate term. That means a uh, middle class tax cut. We can expand the earned income tax credit for our lower wage earners to be able to keep a little bit more money in their pockets. People are struggling to put food on the table. We need to make the child tax credit permanent. And we also need to hold these executives and industries accountable for using inflation as a smokescreen to jack up prices on consumers. Think about uh, the people who are charging the most. These are also the people who are having record years, record profit years. And working class people are paying for that. That's the unfortunate reality that is only going to be exacerbated if people like Ron Johnson are in office because he's only been in it for himself, other wealthy individuals like him, and his biggest donors. In the long term, we need to do more to bring jobs back here. Senator Johnson has focused a great deal of his attention on the issue of crime, and there has been this onslaught of advertising that has labeled you as too liberal on issues of crime and public safety, something that we're seeing in races across the country. As you've watched these ads, what is your reaction to them? And do you believe that they play on racial tropes? Ron Johnson is a hypocrite. Ron Johnson has not done a single thing. I have dealt with the loss of life. I don't, I brought this up on the debate stage, didn't get an answer. I can only assume that Ron Johnson never had to bury a friend. I can only assume Ron Johnson has not gone to these funerals and memorial services for young children who are victims of gun violence, representing a district in the state legislature that had been significantly impacted by violence. It seemed to be routine to have to do that. Ron Johnson has no idea what he's talking about. He only brings up Milwaukee when he talks about crime, but he's never shown up to try to help. He has prioritized the interests and the profits of the gun lobby over the lives of our children and our public safety. He talk all about all he wants to about law and order and about law enforcement. He was nowhere to be found on January 6th when 140 Capitol Police officers were injured. The people who were there to protect him, he turned his back on law enforcement. He turned his back on all of us. Um, you're about to kick off a big tour of the state soon. And one of the big names that's coming out here to campaign for you is former President Barack Obama. I know he's recently cut an ad for you. I'd like to ask you, would you welcome President Biden to the campaign trail with you in the final days of this race? Well, you've always said from the very beginning, people who are talking about rebuilding the middle class here in Wisconsin is more than welcome to join us. And, you know, 
when I heard Barack Obama's DNC speech in 2004, that's what inspired me to get engaged. That's what led me to become an organizer. So this is a sort of full circle moment for me. But would you campaign with President Biden? Oh, like I said, President Biden, anybody who wants to come talk about rebuilding middle class, we're happy to do it. I mean, we've had a number of people come in state. So Biden is uh, welcome if we're talking about the same exact things. All right, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, thank you so much for talking with us today. Of course, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And just as a note for listeners, we did reach out to Senator Ron Johnson's campaign for an interview, and they did not make him available. A skinny blue and silver can of Red Bull is a go-to for both amped-up athletes and all-night partiers. Red Bull's owner and co-founder Dietrich Mateschitz died over the weekend. He was 78. And as NPR's Andrew Limbong reports, his brand went far beyond energy drinks. Ten years ago, base jumper Felix Baumgartner stood 24 miles above the Earth's surface. Decked out in a white suit, he looked down at the ground and told the control room, I'm going home now. And then he jumped. That day, he became the first man to break the sound barrier during freefall. Millions watched, and when he opened his parachute above New Mexico, it was the Red Bull logo that everyone saw bringing him home. Red Bull started when Austrian businessman Dietrich Mateschitz was traveling in Thailand in the 80s. Jet-lagged, he tried a local drink called Krating Deng, and it picked him up. He tracked down the creator, Chaleo Uvidya, and convinced him to carbonate it and, more importantly, market it out west, which included that famous catchphrase, Red Bull gives you wings. Mateschitz didn't give interviews often, but he talked to journalist Duff McDonald, who told NPR in 2012 about Mateschitz's philosophy behind marketing the drink. And I asked him, I said, what gave you the brass to uh, put a premium price on it out of the gate? And he looked back at me, all deadpan, and he said, how would people know it was a premium product if it didn't have a premium price? The company defined itself by associating with extreme sports and F1 racing and even started its own music label. The marketing plan worked. According to the company, a total of 9.8 billion cans of Red Bull were sold worldwide in 2021. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks picked up today where they left on Friday on the rise. The Dow rose one and a third percent, 417 points to close at 31,500. S&P gained about one and two-thirds or two-tenths percent, that is, to close at 37.97. The Nasdaq pulled in 0.86 percent to close at 10,953. It's 418. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering online undergraduate degree completion in interdisciplinary studies. Build off previously completed college credits and earn your bachelor's degree in as few as 30 months. Learn more at bu.edu met. Gasoline prices in Massachusetts continue to trickle down. AAA says the average price of a gallon of unleaded fell two cents in the past week to $3.58. That price is 23 cents lower than the national average. Marketplace has this day in business coming up at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Beacon Hill Books and Cafe with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill, now open at 71 Charles Street and Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com.
Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars, and thanks. In the forecast, staying damp. Look for thunderstorms possibly until about 5 o'clock, maybe a little bit afterwards. And then tonight, cloudy, possibly more rain. Should be fairly mild overnight tonight in the upper 50s. Then tomorrow, clouds once again and milder than today. Temperatures in the upper 60s tomorrow. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. The contest for Pennsylvania's open seat in the U.S. Senate is among the closest and most closely watched in the country. It features two very high-profile candidates, Republican Mehmet Oz, better known as the celebrity TV doctor, and Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who suffered a stroke back in May and only recently resumed a full campaign schedule. Tomorrow, they will hold their only debate. NPR's Don Gon- reports. John Fetterman's task as the campaign enters its final weeks is twofold. He must convince voters to support him to help Democrats hang on to their razor-thin majority in the Senate. On top of that, he needs to demonstrate that his recovery from a stroke five months ago is on track and that he's up to the job he's running for. You'll find him doing both on the campaign trail. On a Friday night. He still wears his trademark black hoodie and baggy shorts. And do I need to remind you that he's six foot eight, shaved head, arms full of tattoos. Fetterman, who is currently Pennsylvania's lieutenant governor and a former small town mayor, is much thinner than he was pre-stroke. And you can tell he's more careful, less gregarious. He talks about what he calls the elephant in the room. The only lingering issues, if you want to call that, is sometimes I miss words. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes I might. It's a true. It's a true. And sometimes I might mush words together that really doesn't exist, you know? But mostly he does seem like any candidate giving a basic stump speech. This one lasted more than 20 minutes. Molly Levernight, a hospitality worker who's here with her mom, was watching Fetterman closely as he spoke. Yeah, I mean, I don't need him swinging off the rafters. I think he was fine. I I think he was honest. He says, I get words confused. I think he was honest and says, you know, I might miss something here and there, but I I have no problem with that. Just days ago, Fetterman's doctor released a statement saying he's recovering well and has no work restrictions. He describes Fetterman as exhibiting, quote, symptoms of an auditory processing disorder. 
So as he recovers, Fetterman uses a computer screen that shows him subtitles during interviews to help with what can seem like difficulty hearing. He'll use that same technology during the debate. Both candidates are spending heavily on TV. Oz, who's been endorsed by Donald Trump and who ran as a conservative in the primaries, now portrays himself as a moderate as he attacks Fetterman on crime and inflation. John Fetterman would raise everyone's taxes, making inflation that much worse. We need more balance and less extremism in Washington. I'm not a politician. I'm a heart surgeon. Fetterman, meanwhile, is hitting Oz on reproductive rights, saying Oz will vote against access to safe and legal abortion. In this new ad, Fetterman gets help from former President Obama. When the fate of our democracy and a woman's right to choose are on the line, I know John will fight for Pennsylvanians. There is also a marked difference in how these candidates campaign. Fetterman, even as he recovers from a stroke, publicizes rallies in advance. With Oz, it's a much more guarded approach. Oz events are more like this one, with friendly media. Here he is in York, Pennsylvania, with Sean Hannity on Fox News, where Oz makes his pitch to moderate Democrats and suburban voters. We believe in the grit of Americans. We believe in America. That is the fundamental difference between me and the far-left radical elements of the Democratic Party. And I think Sean's not... Fetterman, meanwhile, continues to hammer away at Oz as a fraud, as a doctor who sold cure-all supplements on TV, as a candidate who only established residency in Pennsylvania to run for office. Send Dr. Oz back to New Jersey. And send me to D.C. Thank you. Fetterman and Oz will debate Tuesday evening in Harrisburg. Fetterman has consistently led in polls, but his once sizable advantage has narrowed considerably. Don Gagne, NPR News. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. These are the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Jackie Briggs met her unsung hero at a women's health conference in 2006. For several years, I'd been working 60-hour work weeks in this high-pressure IT job, and I had very little time for myself. So I really wanted to go and hear this one particular speaker. As a few hundred women milled around different booths, picking up brochures and eating crudités, this lovely, dark-haired woman came up to me and she said, excuse me, but I can't help but notice your arm. I had what my boss later described as what he thought was a rose tattoo. It was on my upper right bicep. And I was uncharacteristically wearing a sleeveless dress that day. Well, this woman, she asked me if I'd seen a dermatologist about this smallish, irregular, almost birthmark-looking spot. And I assured her I had. She pressed me and said, when? And uh, I had to stop to think, and I counted back the months, and uh, no years. It had been over three years. Uh, I was supposed to follow up, but I was so caught up in my job, I never did. The dermatologist's office never reached out to me either, so blah, 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 time moves on. So this woman urged me to call my doctor Monday morning first thing. She explained she was a nurse for a plastic surgeon, and as she gently touched my arm, she said, really, 
don't wait. And thanks to her, I didn't wait. In the following weeks of doctor's appointments, biopsies, and then the surgery are all a bit of a blur, but because everything moved very fast. But my melanoma was removed and my six inch ragged scar that travels almost from the top of my shoulders down my arm is my everyday reminder of her. If I hadn't listened to her, I probably wouldn't be here. So to my hero, thank you for my life. Jackie Briggs of Portland, Oregon. Jackie says that about two years after that conference and her melanoma surgery, she quit that 60-hour-a-week IT job. She's happily retired, tries to hike about 20 miles a week, and she just finished writing her first novel. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for Unsung Hero comes from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. What's so hard about recycling plastic? That story's still to come on WBUR. Cloudy, damp, relatively mild this evening and tonight. Overnight lows about 58 with fog and more rain. Tomorrow should bring more of the same gray skies and fog, warming to about 68 degrees tomorrow. And then for Wednesday, still the same. Rain clouds warming to 66. We could finally see the sunshine on Thursday. 61 degrees now in Boston. It's 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Chestnut Hill School, leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today, transform tomorrow, on the web at tchs.org. Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices, stanhopeframers.com. And Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's deeply funny show at the Paramount Theater, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. Artificial intelligence can now create images just from a cue of a couple of words or phrases. Artists, though, not so impressed. Some people will see this opportunity as an opportunity to cut costs and have the same quality. They will fail. I'm Kai Rizdal, man versus machine. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Some hospitals across the U.S. say they are facing more cases of respiratory viruses such as RSV, perhaps most notably among minors. RSV usually causes relatively mild cold-like symptoms, but... As NPR's Rob Stein tells us, the virus can cause more serious illness, especially among very young children and the elderly. 
Hospitals in many states are reporting that their beds are filling up with children infected with the respiratory syncytial virus, also known as RSV. Infectious disease experts say RSV and other respiratory infections are hitting unusually early and hard this year because so few people are wearing masks and taking other precautions that prevented the spread of COVID and other respiratory viruses the last two years, and because so few people, especially children, were exposed to respiratory viruses like RSV during the pandemic. Public health experts worry that hospitals could get even more strained when the flu season starts to peak and if another COVID surge hits the country. Rob Stein, NPR News. Students at a high school in South St. Louis were forced to barricade doors and huddle in classrooms this morning after police say a gunman broke into Central Visual and Performing Arts School and opened fire, killing a woman and a teenage girl. Here's another student from the school speaking to ABC. As of right now, I'm not going back to school. I can't do it. I'm traumatized. I'm going to just go home, you know, woosah, fix myself, because it's too much. It's, it's, it's too much for teenagers to be going through. Police say several other people on campus were injured. The gunman is being described as a man in his 20s. He died in an exchange of gunfire with police. On Wall Street, stocks ended lower. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Another teachers' union in the state is rallying at this hour as it continues contract negotiations with the district. Teachers in South Hadley have worked under an expired contract for more than a year. Amy Foley is head of the South Hadley Education Association. And one of the reasons we want to go out and rally is to get community engagement, to make the community aware of the challenges that um, we as teachers are, are facing on a daily basis. Foley says the union will meet tomorrow and discuss a possible strike vote. District representatives say they continue to negotiate in good faith. The Baker administration is making nearly $16 million available to nonprofits, communities, and regional planning commissions for community health efforts. The money is intended to be used to address disparities caused by structural racism. Community partners will use the money to better address mental health issues, chronic disease, and aging. There's a new musical performance space in the region. This past weekend, the Groton Hill Music Center opened its grand complex in an old apple orchard in Groton. The first night featured the center's own orchestra. The next night was a Celtic concert. CEO Lisa Fiorentino says the nonprofit will host all kinds of genres of music and be a center for learning. We have programs we do in schools to make free music available to kids that wouldn't have it otherwise. We have a hospice choir. We have free concerts for seniors. We want to be a place that people really connect. Right now, the concerts are being held in the 300-seat performance space. In January, Groton Hill Music opens an adjacent 1,000-seat concert hall with a door that opens out to lawn seating. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus committed to creating an office space where talent wants to work. Flexible office space tours available at cic.com enterprise. And the Harvard Art Museums with Dare to Know, a new exhibition exploring the compelling role of prints during the Enlightenment. Free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. Pretty gray out there still. We should have some fog and rain through the overnight hours tonight, down about 58 overnight. Tomorrow, more of the same. Gray skies and fog warming to about 68 degrees. This is WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. On a Monday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And right off the top, I want to be clear here. We have got some frustrating news for you. You see, the vast majority of plastic that Americans are putting into recycling bins is not actually getting recycled. That's the finding of a new report out today from Greenpeace. And this may not be surprising for those of you who have followed NPR's own reporting, which found that oil and gas companies misled the public for years into believing that plastic could be recycled, even though they knew it wasn't true. Plastic waste, I mean, it's now expected to triple by 2060, all while the amount of plastic that's recycled into new things continues to drop dramatically. Here to sort through all of this is NPR investigative correspondent Laura Sullivan. Hi, Laura. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so this is going to be really confusing for a lot of people, right? Like, we all see these recycling trucks pull up to the curb, haul away plastic, all these specialized recycling bins in parks and airports. Like, what is going on? Yeah. So for 30 years now, the public has hoped with every bottle and strawberry container and yogurt cup that they thoughtfully put in those bins, that that plastic was going to go on to a happy new life somewhere <laughs> as something else. But mm-hmm. the truth is that it's not, and it likely never has. Greenpeace's report confirms what a lot of environmentalists have been saying for a while now, that aside from a few soda bottles and containers like milk jugs, there are no markets for used plastic trash. It's not economically feasible to collect it, to sort it, or to sell it. And new plastic is cheap and it's easy to make. I mean, it's kind of breathtaking. What about all the plans that we have heard about over the years for soda bottles and other plastics to be in some so-called closed loop where like the plastic is recycled Mm -hmm. and reused again and again? What happened to that? Right. So what the science is, is showing now is that even in the best scenarios, plastic can only be recycled once or twice before the chemicals break. Down. And, and this Greenpeace report notes that that plastic also becomes more toxic every time it's broken down. It's very different from steel and aluminum. I mean, you can melt and reform steel and aluminum for decades. And, and, and you know, even if you do turn a few soda bottles into new shoes or jackets or carpets, it's just a temporary stop. Eventually, those shoes and carpets are going to become trash, too. Huh. Well, then, Laura, if none of this plastic is really recyclable, then Where is that recycling truck taking it? (laughs) What What the Greenpeace report found is that even though it may first go to a recycling center on that truck, that most of it is just getting landfilled. And some of it is winding up in poor countries or in the oceans. This is backed up by a lot of government numbers. After three decades of trying to recycle, the amount of plastic that actually gets turned into something new has now dropped to around 5%. And that will 
probably continue to get worse because every year the amount of plastic produced increases. Um, I wanted to get a sense of what this really looks like on the ground, so I reached out to Trent Carpenter, who runs Southern Oregon Sanitation. Carpenter told his customers a couple years ago that when it came to plastic, they could only put soda bottles and jugs into their recycling bins. No other plastic. We really had to re-educate individuals that a great deal of that material is ending up in a landfill. It's, it, it's not going to a recycling facility and being recycled. It's going to a recycling facility and then being landfilled someplace else um, because they can't do anything with that material. Carpenter told me that putting most plastic in a bin is just an expensive way to send it to a landfill. Then why are so many trash haulers and even officials saying, go ahead, put your clamshells and all this other plastic into recycling bins? Right. I asked Carpenter this very question. This is what he told me. It's easier to be perfectly honest. Politically, it's it's easier to just say, gosh, we're going to take everything and we think we can get it recycled and then look the other way. That's greenwashing at its best. I mean, this is really depressing. What are people supposed to do? Environmentalists really want to bring the conversation back to deposit bills, which can improve the conversation for plastic bottles. But they really want people to look at what they're holding in their hands and saying, this is actually trash. It's not going to be turned into something else. That is NPR's Laura Sullivan. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Actor and comedian Leslie Jordan has died. He was in a car crash in Hollywood this morning. He was 67. The news is a shock to those who knew him from the sitcom Will and Grace. Well, well, well. He won an Emmy for that supporting role in 2006. And he kept on working in TV, though he broke through to new audiences during the pandemic with comedic video diaries on Instagram. Hello, fellow Hunker Downers. It's Leslie Alla Jordan reporting for duty. That new fame allowed him to live out a few other dreams, like writing a book and making a gospel album. Last year, our co-host Ari Shapiro got to talk with Leslie Jordan about that record called Companies Coming. So why gospel music? I grew up in the church, in the Southern Baptist Church. And it's when you grow up in, in the church, everything that we did, even socially, was around the church. It was just such a big part of our, you know, our, our lives. And I loved that music, you know. And then whatever acts I had to grind with the church as I got older and realized I was a homosexual. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's hard to embrace something that doesn't embrace you. So I yeah. kind of wandered away. But I, um, over the years, you know, you get older and you look back and you think, well, you know what? Everybody's doing the best they can with the light they have to see with. And we're, I sure, you know, enjoyed uh, the songs, the music of my youth. Is there a song from those Sunday mornings that you remember hearing in the pews when you were a kid that you're doing on this album now? Almost every single one of them. Really? You know, every single one of them. The one that really struck home to me, because it was my dad's favorite song, is the one that we got T.J. Osborne to sing. It's called In the Sweet By and By, which is just mm-hmm. an old, old yeah. Southern hymn. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet. T.J. Osborne recently came out. Did you and he talk about your shared experience growing up gay in the church? You know, what happened was we texted a lot. He was going to make that announcement, and that's a big one in the country music industry. 
and it was a very heartfelt decision, but it was one that he knew he had to make. And what do you do? I just told him, I'm here, I'm here. And our spirits shall sorrow no more. And our spirits shall sorrow no more. You know, people will ask me, well, what was your coming out experience? Honey, I fell out of the womb into my mother's high heels. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I do remember at some point telling people. I remember I told my mother when I was about 12, I thought she might pull out the Bible. That's what I thought would happen. You know, just not at all. Not at all. She was so wise. And I remember her saying, my fear is that you'll be ridiculed. And I could not bear that. So maybe you can live just a quiet lie. So here I am. <laughs> That's the late Leslie Jordan in conversation with our co-host Ari Shapiro last year. In a statement today, his agent wrote, knowing he has left the world at the height of both his professional and personal life is the only solace one can have today. It's NPR News. is official. Chinese leader Xi Jinping is unrivaled. This past weekend at a Communist Party Congress in Beijing, Xi extended his rule into a third term and he stacked party leadership with his allies. He also left the line of succession unclear. And as NPR's John Ruich reports, that may create problems down the road. Leader succession in China under communist rule has a rocky past, says Rana Mitter, a professor of history at Oxford University. It's always been a dangerous game. Mao Zedong's first choice to follow in his footsteps was state president Liu Shaoqi, but he had second thoughts and purged him in the Cultural Revolution. Liu died in a prison cell in 1969. And then there was Lin Biao, his uh, defense minister, who basically uh, tried to launch a coup, it seems, and died in an air crash. In Mongolia, while apparently fleeing. That was in 1971. When Mao died five years later, his final pick, Hua Guofeng, took over. But he was soon sidelined by Deng Xiaoping, who became paramount leader. Deng eventually established a system that endured, for a while at least. There were informal retirement ages. Leaders were limited to 10 years at the helm. And successors were promoted and groomed well in advance. He put that in place, of course, with the, and the hope that it would be sustainable and uh, that would be the system. Benjamin Kang Lim is a journalist in Beijing with the Singapore Straits Times. He's covered the past six party congresses. I don't think he put it in place to for it to be, uh, um, you know, broken, right? But then laws are made to be broken and rules are made to be bended. 20 years ago, though, the rules survived their first big test at the 16th Party Congress. Back in 2002, it was the uh, first uh, orderly tra uh, transfer of power since 1949. Jiang Zemin handed the reins to Hu Jintao after two full terms in office. Now I have the great honor to introduce to you Comrade Hu Jintao. Hu served 10 years, then followed Jiang's lead, handing power to the next guy, Xi Jinping. The system seemed to be working, according to Jorn Mula, who studies political succession at Aarhus University in Denmark. The Chinese case was then used as an example in uh, the literature on authoritarian systems that sometimes uh, you can actually have institutions that seem to, uh, to do the job. But that's all gone now. Xi Jinping sidelined the men who many thought might succeed him. 
He ended term limits and also concentrated and personalized power to a degree that no Chinese leader has since Mao. Mullah says that could be a recipe for trouble. And history shows very clearly uh, that the problem of succession creates uh, political uh, instability. Uh, so um, uh, when uh, Xi Jinping uh, at some point uh, has to retire, there is no clear model for how that will be done. And that's a potentially dangerous prospect for the world's second biggest economy and a budding superpower with a growing nuclear arsenal. But Rana Mitter says she knows all that, but he wants officials to be laser-focused on his policy priorities and what he calls the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Xi Jinping wants to make it very clear that he's not going anywhere and that people shouldn't spend time speculating about who comes next. He may eventually come up with a new system for succession, but until then, Mitter says she doesn't want his power diluted, and he doesn't seem all that worried about the risks. John Ruich, NPR News, Beijing. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered, a conversation with Grammy Award winning musician Rhiannon Giddens about her new children's book, Build a House. It'll be the Boston Celtics versus the Chicago Bulls in Chicago tonight, 8 10 start time. Patriots will play at Gillette Stadium tonight, but the game won't be the only thing happening on the field. The Pats will honor former player and Hall of Famer Richard Seymour at halftime. The defensive line will be getting his Pro Football Hall of Fame ring. Seymour was inducted into the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio this past summer. Kickoff for the Pats-Chicago Bears game is 8:15. It's 4:48. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com/go. Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. And Love is Calling at the ICA. Yayoi Kusama's Infinity Mirror Room offers endless reflections and the illusion of space. ICABoston.org. With so much at stake in this year's midterm elections, you don't want to fall behind. WBUR and NPR will keep you informed every step of the way. Keep listening for midterm updates you need and check out our website too at wbur.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And Boston Ballet's As Anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere. November 3rd to 13th, tickets at bostonballet.org. Omicron continues to create a rotating cast of subvariants that behave like uninvited house guests. Then it puts on a costume and we don't recognize it as well anymore. We open the door and it's too late. <laughs> The virus is an unpredictable adversary, but is it showing signs of slowing down? Scientists weigh in tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Back in the summer of 2020, when racial justice protests were unfurling all across the country... Grammy-winning artist Rhiannon Giddens was watching her homeland from afar. She was in Ireland, where she's now based with her family, and feeling, as she put it, furious, despairing, impotent. She wondered, would the U.S. ever truly change? And so she wrote down some words and set those lines to music, and then she collaborated with cellist Yo-Yo Ma. The song was called Build a House. You brought me here to build your house, build your house, build your house. You brought me here, build your house and grow your garden fine. And now these lyrics have been paired with vibrant illustrations to form a new children's book, also called Build a House. It tells the story of a family's resilience in the face of oppression and hatred as they try to build their own house. Rhiannon Giddens joins us now. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being with us. So I want to start with the first lyric in this song, which are the first words on the first page of this book. You brought me here to build your house. Can I just ask why you started there, this idea of home, like how so many enslaved people built the homes of so many white Americans. Why start there? Well, that's kind of where my feelings were. I just, the the anger kind of came from like, look, you brought us here, <laughs> to, 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 you know, to, to build this country. And now you, you're saying we can't have a fair life within it. And so that kind of you brought us here to sort of turned right into you brought me here to build your house. Yeah. When I write sort of these kinds of songs that are just sort of, I feel come through me, they, they are very much in a traditional kind of ballad, repetitive kind of form, which, as it turns out, is perfectly suited to figure out how to turn into a kid's book. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because I imagine you had a pretty broad audience in mind when you wrote and performed Build a House as a song. So what made you want to turn it into a book for kids specifically? Well, it was it was kind of amazing because we posted the the song and... Somebody in the Twitter comments said, you know, this would be a great kid's book. Hmm. And I was like, oh, that's a that's a really interesting idea. And I, the thing is, is it's not that I, I've been thinking about kids' books for a very long time. And it kind of just got put way back on the back burner until this, this comment sort of rewoke that desire. And I was kind of locked down in Ireland. And I was like, well, what better time to sort of explore this um, than now? Right. I was struck by how these illustrations, they don't hold back in many ways. Like this family, they're searching for a place to call home. And there's one illustration that's pretty unflinching. It's a white man on a horse who is setting fire to this family's house. Can you tell me why you and Monica Mackay, the illustrator, why you both felt it was important to have a moment like that so vividly portrayed in a book for children? The song doesn't pull any punches at that point, or the the words, you know, you said I couldn't build a house and so you burnt it down. And there's this sort of narrative of everybody can just like haul themselves up by their bootstraps and everybody has an equal chance. And it's kind of like, well, actually, there is this narrative of wherever we try to build, it's torn down. Like the the child's not going to know redlining. The child's not going to know like 
all of the towns that were burnt down during Reconstruction. They're not going to know the massacre of 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina. They're not going to know those things, but they are going to know how unfair that is. Mm-hmm. They're going to get that immediately. And it's just, it's really, it's that simple. And it's important for them mm-hmm. to be able to see that in a way that's not, you know, that is a very strong image, but it's not unbearably violent. It's just, it's a, extremely stark. And it's, I think it's important to to not... Sugarcoat. To not pull punches. and Yeah, to not sugarcoat in, in those moments, you know, as long as you have the framework around it. How much did you feel when you were growing up that what you learned about slavery and Reconstruction while in school, how much did you feel that that was incomplete? Oh, my gosh. Like, the older I get, the more I realize, like, so much of what I was taught around slavery was just, if a, there wasn't much to begin with. And what I remember was like, oh, well, you know, plantation-based slavery wasn't very efficient and it was dying out anyway during the Civil War. And then, you know, and then black people aren't heard of again until the civil rights movement in the 60s. It's like, it's really incredible how much we're not told, you know, because really when you tell a more complete story, you know, you're less surprised by the things that are happening today and that have been happening in this country. Like, it's just... um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just really important to start that early, you know, those those ideas of the complexity of it all. You know, this book, it reminds us how many things were taken away from black people in this country. Freedom, property, and, and you further point out music was also stolen. I want to quote here. You write, but then you came and took my song and claimed it for your own. Can you talk to me more about that piece of this story? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is complicated. Like, I have to always say that there's been cross-cultural collaborative, you know, creation of American music for many, many, many years. But what this is talking about specifically is, you know, particularly the banjo. It first was created by African-Americans in the Caribbean, you know, or people of the African diaspora. And, it, and it's like that in and of itself is such a huge emblem for, you know, the idea of so much black innovative music that then the prophet has been outside of the community. And it's something that I've been dealing with ever since I picked up the banjo. Well, you write in the afterword to this book, we keep finding ways to make our family and our home no matter where we are. What does home mean to you ultimately? Home to me, I mean, I'm I'm a nomad, you know, I'm back and forth here and there, like, So when I'm in Ireland with my kids, that's my home. When I'm in North Carolina with my parents and my sister, and that's my home. When I'm on the road with my partner, Francesco, that's my home, you know. For me, it's really about family and about personal connections. But, you know, for a lot of people, the land is, is like, super important and has been for a very long time. And, you know, for African Americans, you know, owning land was such a big deal because, you know, when we came here, we had nothing. And the the ability to continue to rebuild after being torn down so many times. And that's ultimately what the story is about. It's Mm -hmm. the idea is that, you know, the well never runs dry. We are always able to replenish because ultimately our well comes from our creator. You know, it comes from that thing that's bigger than us and we'll we'll survive it and we'll thrive and 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 we'll, you know, get to that next place. Rhiannon Giddens' new book is called Build a House. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing this. Thank you for having me. You brought me here to build your house, build your house, build your house.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion Pictures presenting Till, based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley's fight for justice for her son, Emmett Till. Starring Danielle Deadweiler, now playing in select theaters, everywhere October 28th. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft used by millions globally. Learn more at keepernpr.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by an unlikely story bookstore and cafe with Pulitzer Prize winner Stacey Schiff and the revolutionary Samuel Adams, November 3rd, and unlikelystory.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A new NPR Maris poll finds that young voters are the least likely to vote in 2022. Among their concerns, inflation, abortion rights, climate change, and the age of the members of Congress. We do have a lot of older people in there, and they're, you know, they don't reflect on what we think now. It's not, you know, the 1900s anymore. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also had Florida Republican Ron DeSantis won a close race for governor in 2018. His profile has grown since then. He leads national news all across the country, and he has become this political heavyweight with an enormous political machine. Also, the population of the critically endangered North Atlantic right whale has fallen again. Scientists say it's the latest indication the whales are edging closer to extinction. These stories and the Wall Street numbers coming up. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Rishi Sunak, Britain's former chancellor of the Exchequer, will become the country's first prime minister of color. NPR's Frank Langford has more from London. Rishi Sunak is a Hindu of South Asian descent whose parents were born in East Africa and later moved to Britain. At 42, he will also be the country's youngest prime minister in more than two centuries. But most of the media here are focusing on how he can help the UK navigate difficult financial waters. That's partly because more people of color are taking on powerful government jobs. Sundar Katwala runs British Future, a think tank focused on race and identity. Ethnic diversity has become a new normal at the top table of British politics in this generation. It's a very recent change. Katwala credits Britain's Conservative Party with opening up its ranks, which he also said was smart politics. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. As the United Nations mulls an international intervention in Haiti, protesters took to the streets of capital Port-au-Prince. NPR's Ada Peralta reports the U.N. could vote as soon as this week whether to take action and in what form. This country is in free fall. Gangs control much of Haiti, and the violence has displaced thousands of people. However, there are still a lot of questions surrounding a potential intervention, including who would lead the military force. But here in Port-au-Prince, protesters have taken to the streets against any intervention. 
Protesters here want the acting prime minister to step down. They say he was installed by the United States. They're carrying Russian and Chinese flags, and they are marching toward the UN offices. They say the crisis in Haiti today was caused by the United States. One leader warned that if foreign forces land on these shores, the fighting could get even more intense. Ada Peralta, NPR News, Port-au-Prince. The number of illegal crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border climbed in September, according to immigration authorities. NPR's Joel Rose reports that extends the record for most migrant apprehensions in a single year. In the fiscal year that ended September 30th, migrants were stopped at the southern border nearly 2.4 million times, topping last year's record by more than a third. Though many of those migrants were quickly expelled under pandemic border restrictions and were counted more than once in the totals. Immigration authorities blame the latest surge in migration on deteriorating conditions in Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, while President Biden's critics blame his administration for ending some border policies of former President Donald Trump. These are likely the last border numbers that will be released before voting for midterm elections ends next month. Joel Rose, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 417 points at 31,499. The Nasdaq was up 92. The S&P gained 44. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Police in New Hampshire have made an arrest in the death of a five-year-old girl, Harmony Montgomery. She was last seen in 2019, although she wasn't reported missing for two years. New Hampshire Attorney General John Formella says her father, Adam Montgomery, faces several charges. Second-degree murder for recklessly causing the death of Harmony Montgomery a person under 13 years of age, under circumstances manifesting an extreme indifference to the value of human life. Prosecutors say Adam Montgomery killed Harmony in 2019 in Manchester, New Hampshire. They recently confirmed they have biological evidence that led them to believe the girl had been murdered. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu continues to push for state help to solve ongoing issues of drug use and homelessness near the intersection of Melnia Cass Boulevard and Mass Avenue. She's asking for more low-threshold housing outside the city. WBR's Amanda Beeland reports Mayor Wu says Boston has had success with similar programs within the city. This year, Boston created nearly 200 units of low-threshold, easy-to-access housing for those living in the area known as Mass and Cass. Wu says roughly 400 people have been connected to housing services through the units in one way or another. Boston doesn't have the funding to create more. That's where Wu says the state should come in. If the state were to create a thousand new, similar low-threshold supportive housing units outside the city of Boston, we believe that that is what would be really transformational in solving this entire issue. Wu says this type of housing outside Boston makes sense. She says according to the latest data, nearly half of those at Mass and Cass right now are from outside the city. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. Financing is now in place for 24 new housing units on property across from the Alewife MBTA station in Cambridge. Mass Housing closed on the $8.5 million project for the nonprofit Just to Start to build a six-story multifamily building. Of the 24 new apartments, five will be restricted to households earning up to 30 percent of the area's median income. Nineteen will be set aside for those earning up to 60 percent. The median income of Cambridge is just over $140,000 for a family of four. 58 degrees now in the Boston area. That's pretty much where it should stay overnight tonight. More rain, more fog overnight. Then for tomorrow, not a lot of change. Patchy fog, overcast on the mild side, though, coming close to 70 degrees. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Focus Features with Armageddon Time, starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, and Anthony Hopkins. One family's pursuit of the American dream from writer-director James Gray in Select Theaters Friday. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Milwaukee. We're two weeks out from the end of voting in this year's midterm elections, so we went to the battleground state of Wisconsin to get a sense of what election season looks like here. Outside an Indian Health Center, the group Wisconsin Native Vote unveiled a colorful mural as the Ho-Chunk Nation's Wisconsin Dells singers and dancers performed. Mark Denning, a member of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin, rallied the crowd. This is the largest native population in the state of Wisconsin, and your vote matters. We does go ahead, yeah, raise the north. And at an event focused on Latino voters, there were bowls full of tortilla chips and trays full of churros. A small group gathered to show support for Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. He's the Democrat hoping to flip one of Wisconsin's Senate seats. Wisconsin Congresswoman Gwen Moore made the case for Barnes. But what you need to say to people is, look, go out there and vote your values. And on a busy street corner outside the Milwaukee Public Market, organizers in bright purple shirts were encouraging people to pledge to vote. Matthew Grover is with the youth voting group Next Gen America. You take a moment and sign a pledge promising you'll show up. I will do it. Yay! Thank you. Young so voters much. turned out in increasing numbers in the last two election cycles, but our most recent NPR Marist National Poll found that this year, young voters are among the least likely to vote this fall. So we wanted to ask some young people about the issues they see as most important. My name is Kai Rollins. I'm 19. I'm an undergraduate student at Marquette University studying physics and Spanish. And I'm independent but left-leaning. I'm Melanie Medina. I'm 20 years old. I do consider myself left-leaning as well. I live here with my roommate, my boyfriend, my cat, and I'm a dental receptionist. My name is Kara Walla. I'm 29 years old. I'm a software engineer, and I live with my husband and four cats in downtown Milwaukee. Uh, oh, and I, I identify as left-leaning. We brought Kai, Melanie, and Kara together at the studios of member station WUWM to talk about the issues that matter to them, starting with the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade. It was scary. I'm definitely, you know, at an age where I'm thinking about the possibility of being pregnant in the next few years. And it's like, you know, you don't know what you have until it's gone. Like, I didn't really appreciate Roe versus Wade until it came to this point where now I'm having to think about being in that position of, you know, having something go wrong in a pregnancy and then not being able to access health care until the point where, you know, my, my own health is threatened as well. And it's really scary. Yeah. And for me, it, the, the whole decision was, was really discouraging because first when the news leaked about like the possibility of it being overturned, there was national outrage and there there were polls held then and there was still a majority that believed it, it shouldn't be overturned. And, and then the, the Supreme Court went and overturned it. What about you, Melanie? It's definitely scary to think that healthcare 
isn't going to be available until you're almost, you know, like on the deathbed. It's definitely something that can't be decided upon by people who don't have, you know, uteruses. Let's talk about some of those other issues then. I'd like to talk about one that I think affects everyone no matter what age you are, and that's the economy right now. Oh, definitely, definitely. Okay, what does that make you think of? You had an immediate reaction, Melanie. The cost of living has gotten so bad, honestly. Like, I I moved out from home right when I was 18. It, it was semi-cheap. I don't know about you guys. Well, I mean, you're a college student, but, like, just working and everything, I groceries have gotten really bad. I know, like, even streaming services have, like, gotten really bad, too. Like, it's it's gotten really costly so far. This is Kara. <laughs> My husband and I just uh, bought a house last year, and between mortgage payments and then like car payments, we're starting to think like, is it even doable to have kids in this economy? <laughs> like, we're in, like a two-income household. I don't know even how we would pay for daycare or all of the expenses of raising a kid right now. Yeah, I am concerned about that. As we've talked about this big bucket of economic issues like housing affordability, cost of living, food prices, are there any specific things that any of you would like to see your elected officials do to address those things that are making daily life feel really unaffordable right now? Well, I I definitely am always in favor of continuing to build affordable housing in the Milwaukee area. In some ways, it also kind of, I feel a little powerless about it. Like, I'm not totally sure how much the elected officials can really do. I think that making sure that, you know, the super wealthy are paying their fair share and not, and, you know, closing tax loopholes, I think that would be huge. That would be really significant. Yeah. And I feel like their money could make a huge difference in the country if they used it correctly. But I'm not confident that our government would use it correctly either, especially with kind of the the political climate at the moment. This is Kara again. Something that's really frustrating to see is that in Milwaukee, we're having some pretty basic services having to be cut back, like our, our parks are understaffed. And then we just got news that a lot of the libraries are having to cut staffing hours. And I think I even read that they're shutting down computer labs at some of those libraries because of how short the city is on a on budget this year, which just is crazy because those are really significant public resources for those communities. I want to talk about climate change a little bit. Why is that such an important issue for you? And what do you feel like the White House and Congress could do to better address it? Oh, it's so huge. It feels like an existential threat in a lot of ways. It's just so massive. And, you know, I'm worried about both what I will see in my lifetime as well as like my children and grandchildren's lifetimes. I'm so worried about pollution. I'm worried about microplastics. Like, it just seems, seems like there's there's so much to worry about right now. You know, I, I want us to protect the Great Lakes. You know, it's our massive reservoir of fresh water that we have here. I would love to see our elected officials move to, you know, protect our water systems, move towards biodegradable plastics. I would love to see legislation around that. I don't, maybe that's a pipe dream, but I would, I would love to see us moving in that direction. And green and renewable energies, I think is huge too. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's scary to think about the earth not being able to sustain everyone who lives on there. It's definitely caused a little bit of anxiety for me. I'm not sure about you guys, but it's definitely a stressor, especially like I'm pretty sure it's a stressor for people who can't get to clean water and everything. We've talked about a lot of issues, and I'd like to ask, how are you all feeling about the Senate race? Well, I I would really like to see Barnes win. And it is frustrating to see how much money has been pouring into Johnson's side of the race. Like the the amount of ads that I've been getting is, you know, 
astronomical. And this is a really significant race, I think, for the Democrats. Barnes was leading earlier in the summer, and now I think he's fallen behind Johnson. Uh, really frustrating to, to see that sort of change in the polls. Do you think he can win? I think he can win. I've been reaching out to uh, the high schoolers that I know. I'm like, tell your friends to, to register to vote, please. <laughs> I would really, really, really like if Mandela, you know, won. I do think that he can. I was at his um, meet and greet. And one thing that both him and Gwen Moore were talking about is voting for your values. And I definitely do think that if we told people, you know, like, Think about your values, and then you can just go ahead and correlate those to whoever values, you know, are closer to yours. And I do definitely think if we get people to register, I'm pretty sure he would be able to win. We've got Congress. Democrats have control by an incredibly slim margin. As outsiders, what do you think the solution is to breaking through some of that logjam and the situation where it seems like there's oftentimes just little space for compromise? I do think that we have to get more younger people in Congress and the House of Representatives. We do have a lot of older people in there and their, you know, opinions, their views aren't really, they don't reflect on what we think now. It's not, you know, the 1900s anymore. Yeah, I think making sure that the younger generation's views are are being taken into consideration and need to be represented two things that I'd like to see. So one of them is I'd like to see improved access to voting for everyone. You know, I think that right now the the people that find it hardest to vote are young people and minority voters. And I think it would be really significant if we made voting easier. And it feels like in the last few years we've been going backwards, you know, with like the Republicans have been talking a lot about like election credibility, but a lot of that, it just comes down to restricting access to voting for people who should legitimately be able to vote, which is super, super frustrating. And then the the second thing, I would love to see corporate dollars mattering less in elections. It's frustrating to see elections being able to be won by whoever can spend the most money on that campaign. I know that we are just about two weeks away from the midterm elections, but before we know it, there is going to be another presidential election in 2024. So I'd like to ask each of you for your opinion of President Joe Biden's term in office so far. This is Carol. Go ahead. I think I've been maybe more pleased than I thought I would be so far with his term. I don't think he's necessarily like an inspiring, you know, president, but it's been very nice to have a president that isn't constantly embroiled with scandals every single day. I completely agree. But also it it is concerning with the age of who we're electing as presidents. My grandparents are similar ages to him, and there's no way I'd want one of my grandparents running the country. Um, <laughs> and, and that's no offense to them, but there's so much unpredictability at that age. And I, I don't think that like level of uncertainty is, is necessarily something we should look for in a leader. Do you all think that President Biden should run for a second term? Oh, he's getting old. Yeah. Do we want Grandpa Joe in there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, that is that has been frustrating to see, and it, it hasn't been historically like this. So I'm I'm a millennial, and I think that Kai and um, Melanie, you two are probably Gen Gen Z, right? I uh, think so. Yeah, right? I'm 20. <laughs> well, I I'd love to see some younger people in politics, and and at this point, it's like by younger, you could be a younger person in politics in your 60s. It, yeah. <laughs> that's yep. that's the place that we're at. <laughs> We just heard from Kara Walla, Melanie Medina, and Kai Rollins, all voters under the age of 30 here in Milwaukee.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the number of North Atlantic right whales continues to fall. That story just ahead. Also, Colleen Hoover was a social worker, wife and mother, writing young adult romance books on the side. Now she's the country's top-selling author. Our profile just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit tackling the world's biggest sustainability challenges like the climate and water crises. Learn more at ceres.org slash WBUR. Stocks picked up today where they left off on Friday on the rise. The Dow rose one and a third percent, 417 points to close at 31,500. S&P gained about one and two thirds percent to finish the day at 3797. The Nasdaq pulled in 0.86% to close at 10,953. All the details coming up on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Cloudy, damp, relatively mild this evening and tonight. Overnight lows about 58 with fog and more rain. Tomorrow should bring more of the same gray skies and fog warming to about 68 degrees. It is 59 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The North Atlantic right whale is edging closer to extinction. It's a critically endangered species, and its numbers have fallen again. There are only 340 right whales, scientists report. Barbara Moran from NPR member station WBUR has more. The report from the North Atlantic Right Whale Consortium says there were only 15 calves born in 2022, down from 18 born last year. Heather Pettis is a research scientist at the New England Aquarium and executive administrator of the consortium. She blames the low birth rate, at least in part, on stress and injury caused by fishing gear. Females who are entangled, they delay reproduction. Having calves until uh, they're much older, if at all. Entanglement and ship strikes are the leading causes of death for right whales, but the fishing industry is opposed to additional regulation. In Massachusetts, the lobster industry is already required to use rope that breaks more easily to prevent entanglements, and most state waters are closed to lobster fishing for three to four months each year. Beth Cassoni, executive director of the Massachusetts Lobstermen's Association, calls the existing regulations draconian. It's frustrating. The industry is definitely at its wit's end because how much more can they do when a closure isn't enough? Federal agencies have released a draft strategy to protect right whales as the offshore wind industry takes shape. But some advocates want the federal government to do more, 
like enabling a rapid switch to ropeless fishing gear. Erica Fuller is with the Conservation Law Foundation. Rather than just apportioning a $10 million or a $13 million fix for helping fishermen get to ropeless gear, we need to be looking at hundreds of millions of dollars. It's unclear whether any of these initiatives will be enough to save the whale from extinction. For NPR News, I'm Barbara Moran in Boston. The top-selling author in the U.S. right now is a 42-year-old mother and former social worker. Colleen Hoover lives in the same small Texas town where she has spent practically her entire life. Hoover's romance-heavy reads are regular fixtures on bestseller lists. And NPR's Chloe Veltman caught up with Hoover around the launch of her latest novel, It Starts With Us. Colleen Hoover tries her best to cling on to the trappings of ordinary life. Like so many of us, the author says she struggles to get out of bed in the mornings. I'm not a coffee person, so I just have to drag myself out of it. She posts self-deprecating videos on social media in which she does goofy things like falling over on a moving escalator. I totally did that on purpose. (laughs) And she gets a small thrill each time her sons do the laundry. I'm not going to complain, you know, when my white towels turn pink. But try as she might to keep things real, Hoover's life has taken an especially surreal turn lately. This past year has been insane. Anybody that you can think of as a heavy-hitting, best-selling author, she has outsold them all. That's Kristen McLean. She's an analyst for the publishing industry sales tracking firm NPD Books. She's outsold James Patterson. She's outsold John Grisham. She's outsold Stephen King. McLean says nearly all of the 24 books Hoover has come out with over the past decade have been bestsellers. But she says the author's more recent rise to publishing megastardom has a lot to do with the love she started to get on social media during the stay-at-home days of the pandemic from an unexpected segment of the population. Colleen Hoover's readers tend to skew younger. They tend to skew diverse. We really think it's a new kind of emerging readership. This book is amazing. One of the author's new fans is social media influencer Kiara Lewis. In a video on TikTok, the 26-year-old Nashville resident sits in her car shaking and tearful as she brandishes a candy-coloured Colleen Hoover paperback to her chest. In this book, wow, wow! Lewis, who's black, is among the thousands of mostly young, ethnically diverse social media influencers who regularly share videos of themselves responding to popular books. In an interview for this story, Lewis says the only books she'd ever read were self-help titles until she saw people recommending Hoover's 2014 romance Ugly Love on TikTok last summer. She says she decided to take a gamble on it after seeing copies for sale at Target for 10 bucks. I read the book halfway through, I'm just like freaking out. I'm like, who would have thought reading could be enjoyable? Lewis says she loves Hoover's books because they're a breeze to read. So if you're definitely not into reading, you can pick it up and finish the book in like two days or less. Hoover's popularity also stems from the wide variety of tropes and genres she draws on in her writing. In a recent essay, Slate Books and Culture columnist Laura Miller dubbed Hoover's books, quote, the everything bagels of popular fiction because of the author's catch-all approach. If you want like a super dreamy romance, you can get that. If you want it to be pretty erotic, you can get that. And you can also get a big tearjerker. Miller explains the author's stratospheric rise this way. Her skill in promoting herself on social media and the sort of weird evangelical quality of of her books that make people want to recommend them to other people 
all of that combined sort of reaches a mass audience. Colleen Hoover says she was five years old and had just learned to write when she dashed off her first story. And it was called Mystery Bob. It was about this guy who was looking for these five rings. She continued to hone her writing skills in between doing schoolwork and tending the cows on her family's dairy farm in the small Texas town of Saltillo. My sister and I had our own calves and we would feed those before we got ready for school. She got a degree in social work, married her high school sweetheart and had three kids. It was in 2011, while living in a trailer and working for child protection services, that Hoover started writing her debut novel, Slammed. She self-published the young adult romance, set in the world of slam poetry, on Amazon. Hoover's mom, Vanoy Fight, remembers the weeks following its release. She called me and she said, Mom, six people I don't even know bought my book. And I'm like, you are kidding. And then a couple weeks later, she said, Mom, 60 people bought my book. I think I can pay my life bill. I'm like, oh my God, Colleen, that's crazy. And then it just blew up from there, just blew up. Hoover's new book, It Starts With Us, picks up from where her hit 2016 novel, It Ends With Us, left off. I didn't save him. All I did was fall in love with him. The sequel chronicles the fallout of an outspoken florist's marriage to an abusive neurosurgeon and her blossoming romance with a sensitive restaurateur. Even the way he makes such intense eye contact while saying goodbye makes my stomach flip. Hoover says she doesn't much enjoy writing sequels. She says she wrote It Starts With Us in response to lobbying from her fans. I love standalones. Um, that's what I'm drawn to. For years, she's been passionately responsive to her readers. The author has been known to drop in on discussions about her novels on social media. And she says she spends more time autographing books on the average day than writing them. I sign books probably an hour or two every day. But the mounting pressure to engage has taken a toll on the author lately. She had to cancel her book tour as a result of health concerns. And she says she's behind on her next deadline. It's gotten to the point where she feels she needs to take a step back from the social media that has largely fueled her success. I just try to stay away from social media as much as I can. I don't even have it on my phone, actually, any social media accounts right now. Colleen Hoover says there definitely won't be a third book in this series. Then again, she admits she said the same thing about the second one. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight on Marketplace, houses are staying on the market for more than a week longer than last year, according to Zillow and Redfin. How did the market shift from lightning fast sales to careful consideration? That's coming up. And at 7 o'clock, it's on point. How black Americans fought World War II on two fronts, one against fascism abroad, the other against racism at home. In sports, it's Boston versus Chicago tonight on the field and on the court. The Celtics play the Bulls in Chicago at 8-10, and the Patriots will host the Chicago Bears tonight at Gillette Stadium. Kickoff time is 8-15. In the forecast, damp weather should be with us for a couple more days. There's a possibility of more rain and thunderstorms this evening and tonight. Overnight lows dipping to just about 58 degrees. Tomorrow shouldn't bring too much change. Patchy fog, plenty of clouds on the mild side coming close to 70. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a Medics Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go. 
The breadth of the theories is just mind-boggling, and they're all committed to the end goal, to explain how Arizona went for Joe Biden. And one thing that we have seen over the last two years is that it doesn't matter if you punch out one theory, you pick up another one. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Just over two weeks to go before Election Tuesday, and President Biden is looking to make the case to voters that a Republican takeover of the House and Senate would lead to setbacks for families. Biden on the road speaking to staff and volunteers at the local Democratic National Committee headquarters in Delaware today, trying to draw a distinct contrast between his administration's plans versus Republicans. It's a choice between two vastly different visions for America, significantly different. Democrats are building a better America for everyone, with an economy that grows from the bottom up and the middle out, where everyone does well. Republicans are doubling down on their mega-maga trickle-down economics that benefits the very wealthy, failed the country before, and will fail it again if they win. Biden's remarks come as stubborn inflation continues to weigh heavily on Americans. Republicans are looking to make the November midterm election a referendum on Biden. The teenager who shot 11 people at an Oxford, Michigan high school last year has pleaded guilty on all charges. From member station WDET, Alex McLennan tells us that includes a count of terrorism. For parents like Meg and Gregory, the plea hearing was her first time seeing Ethan Crumbly in person since the shooting. Her son, Keegan, survived but was held hostage in a school bathroom. Megan Gregory says while she wants the teenage gunman to serve life without parole, she does hope he gets help behind bars. For instance, medication or mental health when he didn't have that at home. So I hope that someday he does feel that remorse. I still saw evil. An involuntary manslaughter trial for Crumbly's parents is expected to start in the coming months. The couple is accused of missing major red flags and giving their son the gun used in the shooting. For NPR News, I'm Alex McLennan in Detroit. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Construction on the project that would bring Canadian hydropower through Maine and into Massachusetts remains on hold. A judge in Maine has rejected a request by the company New England Clean Energy Connect to allow it to resume construction on a power line pending a lawsuit next spring. At issue is whether it was legal for Maine voters to reject the project after permits had been granted and construction had begun. The project calls for a 145-mile power line from Canada to Maine. There, it would connect to the regional power grid. Two groups are suing to get a question on the state's 2024 ballot that would limit individual donations to so-called super PACs. The proposed measure would cap individual donations to those political action committees at $5,000. Last month, Attorney General Maura Healey threw out the language of the proposed ballot question, ruling it would violate free speech rights. The group's Free Speech for the People and Equal Citizens filed lawsuits today with the state Supreme Judicial Court challenging her decision. The Suffolk County District Attorney will not seek a new trial against a man convicted of murder in the 1980s. DA Kevin Hayden's office made the announcement today. Joseph Pope was sentenced to life in prison after his conviction for the 1984 shooting death of Efren de Jesus. 
Earlier this year, the state Supreme Court ruled that Pope should get a new trial because prosecutors failed to disclose certain evidence at his first trial. And members of the region's Hindu and Indian communities are celebrating Diwali this week. Known as the Festival of Light, celebrations include decorating homes, sharing meals, and exchanging gifts. Vishela Gade is the president of the Indian Association of Greater Boston. She says the holiday is a chance to focus on personal growth. You know, yeah, there are there are things that are they don't always go the way you want, but there are things that can, you know, lighten up your life. And that the festival is to celebrate those things that um, bring that light in our life. There are dances, plays and celebrations taking part across Greater Boston through the week. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. Cloudy, damp, relatively mild this evening and overnight. Tonight, temperatures right about where they are now, 58 degrees, fog and more rain. For tomorrow, more of the same. Gray skies, fog, warming to about 68 degrees. And then for Wednesday, ditto. Rain clouds warming to about 66. We could finally see the sunshine on Thursday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end to end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Tonight, Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, is facing off with his Democratic challenger, the former Florida governor, Charlie Crist, in their first and only debate before next month's election. Polling shows DeSantis with an average 10-point advantage, and the outcome of the race might tell us how his leadership has resonated with Florida voters, like his response during the pandemic, pushing against federal guidance on masking and vaccines. In Florida, we reject the biomedical security state, which erodes liberty, harms livelihoods, and divides our society. Voters might also be thinking about his stances on education, like his push against critical race theory and his support for the bill that restricted how schools teach about LGBTQ topics. Does it say that in the bill? Does it say that in the bill? I'm asking you to tell me what's in the bill because you are pushing false narratives. It doesn't matter what critics say. It says it bans classroom instruction on sexual identity and gender orientation. For who? For, for grades pre-K through three. More recently, voters have watched DeSantis respond to Hurricane Ian and, separately, his controversial decision to fly dozens of migrants from Texas to Massachusetts. But yes, if you have folks that are inclined to think Florida is a good place, our message to them is we are not a sanctuary state and it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction and yes, we and a re-election for DeSantis that. could have some national political stakes beyond the midterms. We're going to talk about all of that with Emily Mahoney, political editor for the Tampa Bay Times. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So it might be worth remembering as we listen to some of those moments that we just mentioned above, you know, Ron DeSantis, he wasn't always seen as someone so aligned with former President Trump. Like when did that shift happen for DeSantis, would you say? 
Well, his rise to prominence has been really fascinating to follow. So I covered his campaign in 2018. And back then, you have to remember, he was a somewhat unknown congressman representing the northeast part of Florida. And he was able to win that election in large part because he was endorsed by then President Donald Trump. Uh, he won over a much more established Republican in the primary and squeaked out a victory just barely in the general. Um, but then when he took office, there was a, a sort of a honeymoon period where he championed a lot of bipartisan issues for about the first year of his administration. Teacher pay, raising teacher salaries was a big one, cleaning up Florida's waterways. Some Democrats were expressing surprise that this guy who they expected to be really hard right was really sort of finding compromise. And really all of that changed when the pandemic hit. He really embraced this combative style of rejecting the advice of uh, pretty much the medical establishment and um, wanted Florida to be out in front early, opening up schools, opening up businesses. He you know, prohibited local municipalities from enforcing mask mandates, for example. And so that really, I think, accelerated his rise to national prominence. And he he's really found this rhythm of being on the national stage and positioning himself as a foil to President Biden and what he calls the radical left sort of on a daily basis. I want to pivot to a moment to his challenger. This is former Governor Charlie Crist. And just to remind people, Crist was a Republican himself when he was governor more than a decade ago, but switched his party affiliation back in 2012. It is worth noting that even with more voters registered as Republican in Florida compared to years past, there are still a number of unaffiliated voters in the state. What do you think might sway them to Crist? Yeah, well, that's always the big question in Florida. We have so many independent voters here. And I think that uh, if you ask for that question of Chris, he would say probably abortion. <laughs> he has been hammering his abortion messaging constantly um, in the last few weeks and has been warning voters that if uh, DeSantis is reelected, that he will pass an even more stringent ban on abortion than what exists currently, which is a 15 week ban with no exceptions. And uh, so I think that that's where he is hedging his bets. And I would say that the Republicans believe that it is the issue of the economy. That has sort of been their closing argument in the state of Florida. And I think, you know, the results will sort of start to tell us which issue is resonating more. I also want to talk a little bit about the effect Hurricane Ian might have on this race. Like earlier this month, we had reporting on how Florida has had to scramble to get polling places ready after Hurricane Ian. How is that recovery and response impacting the race politically, you think? It impacted the race in a really big way, I would say. Um, Charlie Crist has had an uphill battle from the start um, because of his huge disadvantage with fundraising, for example. But he was starting to pick up some momentum before the hurricane hit. He had some planned fundraisers and all of that was scrapped because of the hurricane. Um, instead of that, what we saw was DeSantis on television standing next to Biden. And, you know, all that does is really position DeSantis as looking gubernatorial, as solving an issue in a bipartisan way, which is popular with voters and uh, really sort of marginalize any conversation about Chris for a few weeks. So one Democratic pollster said it was sort of the final nail in the coffin for Charlie Chris. Huh. 
Well, of course, um, winning a second term as governor for DeSantis could help put him in a better position to possibly run for president in 2024. Can you just remind us, like, what signals has DeSantis given recently suggesting he really does plan to run for the White House? Well, if you ask him about it publicly, he'll always downplay it and say that, you know, everyone is obsessed with 2024, but I'm just focused on winning 2022. But he has continued to hold fundraisers around the state. He's campaigned for other Republican candidates. So he's kind of lending his star power in a way that is is sort of Trumpian. Um, And so I think that that's really undeniable um, in terms of fueling the 2024 buzz. So what do you think has DeSantis's first term as governor put him on a clear path to run for president? Or do you think he may have alienated too many voters nationally to make a realistic run for the White House? I think that his first term has definitely positioned him to run for a 2024 Republican primary. Like we talked about, he has this combative political style that's popular with Republicans and really has positioned himself as a national figure among Republicans. Now, whether that translates to a general presidential win, it's very hard to say, obviously. Uh, It's a lot of uh, sort of hypotheticals built into that. But, you know, the sort of elephant in the room here, no pun intended, is is, uh, Donald Trump as well, which, you know, if he were to run against DeSantis in a hypothetical 2024 race, that obviously complicates things for Governor DeSantis, um, considering he owes much of his political rise to Trump. That is Emily Mahoney, political editor with the Tampa Bay Times. Thank you so much. Thank you. Inflation is stubbornly high, economic growth is stalling, and these are not just American issues in a world where what happens in Ukraine or China affects prices everywhere, economic downturns can be contagious. Today on our daily news podcast, Consider This, the economic outlook from Western Europe and South Asia. Search for Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Harvey Weinstein and his attorneys were in a Los Angeles courtroom today for the opening statements of his new sexual assault trial. He's already serving a 23-year prison sentence for a conviction in New York State. In the California trial, he faces up to 140 years. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco is outside the courthouse. I want to warn people we will be talking about details of sexual assault. Hey there, Mandalit. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, so opening statements today. Give us a readout on what each side said. Okay, so well, LA's deputy district attorney told jurors they'll be hearing from eight women who say they were assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. Four are from Los Angeles, four are from outside the area, and each of them came forward independently. Um, The prosecutor started off with some rather graphic quotes from them, describing things they say Weinstein did to them or made them do between 2004 and 2013. He quoted one of the alleged victims saying, I'm shaking and I kind of and I'm kind of being dragged to the bedroom another said please stop I don't want this what are you doing and another said I was trying to convince him that's it that it's not going to happen I was like please I have kids 
And those were just the quotes that you can say on the radio, but others were even more graphic. You know, the prosecutor, ta prosecutor talked about how frightened the women had been of Harvey Weinstein's stature. He's, uh, they described him as an intimidating and powerful man in Hollywood, a king, and a sexual predator. Here's another quote. He's big, he's broad, he's overweight, he's domineering. Mm. I, I want to focus on these women, the eight women you said the jury is going to hear from. Can you tell us more about who they are? Sure. Well, some of them are fashion models, actresses, a licensed massage therapist, and there's also Jennifer Siebel Newsom, an actress and documentary, documentary filmmaker. She is married to California Governor Gavin Newsom. Prosecutors say that she met with him uh, with Weinstein in 2005 when she was making her way in Hollywood, meeting for what she thought was a business meeting, uh, during which time his aides apparently or reportedly left them alone, and he then sexually assaulted her after he allegedly referred to A-list actresses whose careers he supposedly made. You know, the prosecutor said this was a pattern for Weinstein, meeting aspiring actresses and other women at award ceremonies and film festivals and industry parties, luring them into bathrooms or hotel rooms isolated for his assaults. The deputy DA said these women are able to describe Weinstein's private parts and how they were scarred from surgery. The prosecutor also played a recording in which one of the alleged victims secretly got Weinstein to talk about some of what he had done. And some of these women didn't come forward the, with the allegations until the New Yorker and the New York Times broke the news and the Me Too movement began. Oh, of course. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, I said he was there. How did he, how did he look? Well, you know, he was wheeled into the courtroom in a wheelchair. Um, he was not in prison gear, but in a dark suit and tie. Here in California, Weinstein has pleaded not guilty to counts of what the law calls forcible rape, oral copulation, sexual battery by restraint, and sexual penetration by use of force. Weinstein's attorneys say that the 70-year-old is not in good health. And since he was put away, he's had COVID, he had a heart procedure, he now has diabetes and is technically blind. His lawyers told the L.A. judge they're worried he might have a heart attack or a stroke. All right, so that is NPR's Mandalit Del Barco. She is, as you can hear, outside the L.A. courthouse for the Harvey Weinstein trial. Thanks, Mandalit. Sure thing. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next, part two of our conversation with two country music artists, Tanya Tucker and Brandi Carlisle. That's just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Best Barry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bestberry.com. With so much at stake in this year's midterm elections, you don't want to fall behind. WBUR and NPR will keep you informed every step of the way. Keep listening for midterm updates that you need. This is 90.9 WBUR. Forecast more rain off and on, some thunderstorms again tonight, cloudy. And uh, temperatures right about where they are now, 58 degrees on the mild side. Tomorrow, clouds once again. Temperatures should warm to about 68 degrees. And then for Wednesday, same thing. Rain clouds warming to about 66. Could finally see the sunshine on Thursday. In sports, the Celtics versus Chicago Bulls in Chicago tonight, 8-10 start time. Patriots will play at Gillette Stadium tonight against the Chicago Bears. Game time is 8-15. This is WBUR, 58 degrees now at 549.
WBUR supporters include Welland Montessori School, a Boston parent's family favorite. Toddler to grade 8. Inspire, challenge, empower. Open house November 6th. Register at Welland.org. More than a million Black Americans fought for the United States in World War II, a call to arms that posed a painful question. Should I sacrifice my life to live half American? Is the America I know worth defending? I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store, World War II from a Black perspective. That's on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It can be hard to get a word in edgeways when you try to interview Tanya Tucker and Brandi Carlisle together. They are so busy telling stories, laughing, singing. You know, I don't mind keeping pictures. <laughs> so I don't uh, wear those no shoes, shoes no more. That's it. Go, girl. Brandy Carlisle and Tanya Tucker are queens of American music, and now they are making it together. In the first part of this conversation, which aired Friday, we talked about the album they came together to make, which won Best Country Album at the Grammys in 2020. Today, we're going to hear about the friendship that developed during that collaboration. One of the things she said to me one time, she said, Tanya, T, we're just magic together. That's what we are. And I thought that was just like, Wow. I think we are. I yeah, do. Well, I know we are now. We're an unlikely pair. <laughs> you think it now, I, that means I know it now. These two women are different generations. Brandy Carlisle is 41 to Tanya Tucker's 64. And when they first met three years ago, Brandy's star was rising. For Tanya, it had been 25 years since her last Grammy nomination. People who could sing you every word of a Dolly Parton song might have struggled to name a Tanya Tucker song. Brandy told me she started wondering if Tanya was ripe for a comeback, as she was chatting one day with her producer, Shooter Jennings. He heard something in my voice and he made a comment. I said, oh, you know, she's my hero. I've loved Tanya Tucker since I was a little girl. I was like, "What? what is she up to? And he goes, you know, she's still singing great. It was true. Long story short, Brandy went to meet Tanya and helped to write and produce that Grammy-winning album. They made a film together about the process called The Return of Tanya Tucker, which got me to wondering, after all the years out of the spotlight, how did Tanya feel about a return? Was there ever a moment, Tanya, where you wondered, do I still do I still have it? Like, do I have another Every album day. in me? Every day. She still does. I mean, every time I, before I step on a, a stage, I have that thought. You know, because every show is different. There's bad challenges to get them off their, especially when they're a little older crowd, to get them on their, off their seats and on their feet. Uh, but it's always a, a thing where I think, um, I just don't think I'm probably going to, I don't think I'm going to be good enough. I got to do something, mm -hmm. you know, because there's always, when you can't sing, you got to dance, you know. <laughs> and I have had to learn how to dance. <clears throat> but I said, you know, <laughs> I said, so Cowboy asked me if, he, if I wanted to dance. I said, I'll dance with you if I can lead. <laughs> Here's a taste of what these two are cooking up together. This is Tanya, her new single, just dropped, co-written with Brandy. It's called Ready As I'll Never Be. And watching doves fly sooner than me I guess I'm ready Ready as I'll never be. That 
voice. You don't sing like that unless you have seen some stuff on this earth. And listening, I wanted to put the same question to Brandy Carlisle that you already heard me ask Tanya. Did Brandy ever ask whether her friend wanted another round of fame and all the pressure that comes with it? I checked in regularly with myself, with her, about whether she shared our desire for her to regain this recognition or whether or not I was bordering on exploitive. There were days that she'd wake up and she wouldn't come out of her bus and I'd go, I need to check in. I need to make sure this is right and that this isn't me forcing a desire that I have for this person, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah I understand that. But, but when we were recording, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. But when the lights go down, when your shoulders go back and you become Tandy Tucker, it becomes so clear to me that fundamentally that is that is what you love. That's who you are. Yeah, and Willie, I think, said it best. The only time I'm free and nobody can tell me what to do or say I like that outfit or I don't like that or give their opinion is when I'm on stage. So maybe that's a little bit about what I do. I feel that way too. Yeah. I feel really safe up on stage. I feel like that's where I'm the most understood. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas what makes Brandy Carlisle nervous? Well, that would be having Tanya Tucker come visit. I was worried that my house wouldn't be, like, fancy enough for her, you know, because she's oh, a contradiction. God, she's a contradiction. Like, a one in, on one hand, she, like, rides rodeo, and she's totally cutting, rugged. Cutting horses. Cutting horses, sorry. Mm -hmm. But on the, other, on the other hand, like, she's freaking fancy. She's country music royalty, you know? So I was like, I don't know if my house is fancy enough for Tanya oh. Tucker. But she'll understand, like, I, you know, I've lived in this log cabin my whole adult life, and she'll love, love it because I love it, you know? So... I'm waiting for her to come out, and she's she's calling me for directions, which is down a long, long dirt road, and she's from on the, the phone. From the airport. I'm coming from the airport. Yeah, with an Uber driver. Yeah. And she goes, oh, <laughs> baby. Hey, stuck. I, I got to call you back. I'm going to get us out of this. She gets on the phone with me, kicks the Uber driver out of the yeah, seat, I'll gets in the truck, pulls, the, pulls his vehicle out of the mud, and then drives the rest of the way to my house with That's mud right. all over her tracksuit and shows up. And That's I was like, funny. yeah, I think I'm fancy enough for Tanya Tucker. <laughs> yeah, but I loved her house. And yeah. she and she makes the best Wables Rancheros I've ever had. Oh, yeah, I made that for you. That, that was, was with awesome. the shrimp and stuff like that. I don't know what. It was just awesome. I wake up in the morning. She'd be standing there in her boxers cooking yeah. bacon with a fork. Yeah, those little muffins you made, those are so great. <laughs> See what I mean about how it's hard to get a word in edgeways? But I was curious about one more thing. Talk to me, both of you, about timing. It's everything. <laughs> Tanja Tucker dropped her first country hit when she was 13 years old. 13. Brandy Carlisle didn't make it big, like really big, until her late 30s. And I had read a recent interview where she attributed her success in part to the fact that it came when it did. Because, you know, you only have so many shots anymore. And if you're not ready for that, like musically ready, emotionally ready, physically ready, and just mentally ready to like seize that moment and go, this is my shot. I'm going to do this. I don't think you can do that in your... 20s on purpose but you know when it comes to like making it as a term yeah people like me and i'm really interested in what oh, you no, think I'm about this like, too when, when, when's that gonna happen <laughs> yeah i don't know when that happens well quite the opposite for me i always felt like i had made it even when i won a karaoke contest so i recognize they're all different levels of, of success you know it all comes from inside making it that, that changes. It cha your idea about it, I think, yes. changes yeah? as you go along. What do you, know? you think? Well, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. But I think to the next person that says I'm an icon or a legend or a superstar, I'm going to punch them out. Because you don't like I said, it? 
Oh, no, because I, I, I'm looking, I'm trying to pack. Where's my, okay, uh, if they could only see me now. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't call me such a, an icon or yeah. anything. When so, you're washing your hair in a gas oh, station not, sink. Exactly. Yeah. No, because we still all do that. But winning a couple of Grammys in your 60s, that must feel like, hey, I made it. Yeah. Well, I got so comfortable with losing that you know, I was happy with that. No oh. pressure, you know, but winning. It's like, oh, okay, now we, we got to get, the next one's got to be better, you know? Yeah. It's just constant. Next better, one better, is better. better, better, better. How, how far can you go? Uh, you know, but I got a long, I got a long way to go, let me tell you. Tanya Tucker and Brandy Carlisle, singers, songwriters, friends. Their movie, The Return of Tanya Tucker, is in theaters now. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having us. What a really kick. <laughs> this is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. This is 90.9 WBUR, 59 degrees now in the Boston area, staying overcast, damp, and relatively mild this evening and tonight. Overnight lows about 58 with more rain, and tomorrow should bring more of the same. Gray skies and fog warming to about 68 of tomorrow. For Wednesday, look for rain clouds once again. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the trustees, caring for more than 120 special places across Massachusetts. More about how you can help at thetrustees.org slash Y-O-U. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Another new name to get used to at the helm of British politics. Rishi Sunak will become the UK's new prime minister. It's third in two months. He won the race to be the leader of the Conservative Party today. Sunak will become the first British Asian prime minister and at 42 years old, one of the youngest in history. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Wisconsin's Democratic Senate candidate Mandela Barnes says big corporations are using inflation as a smokescreen to jack up prices on consumers. Think about uh, the people who are charging the most. These are also the people who are having record years, record profit years. Working class people are paying for that. Barnes is trying to unseat Republican Ron Johnson and the legacy of a man who co-founded the Red Bull brand and created a sports, media and real estate state empire around it. That's coming up. It's 6.01. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The Justice Department has announced charges against 13 people, including suspected Chinese intelligence officers, in three cases involving alleged plots to advance Beijing's interests in the United States. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. The three cases were filed in federal courts in New York and New Jersey. And one of them, two suspected Chinese spies, are charged with trying to obstruct a federal investigation into a China-based global telecom company. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the defendants directed a U.S. law enforcement official to steal inside information about the case against the company. The defendants believed that they had recruited the U.S. employee as an asset. But in fact, the individual they recruited was actually a double agent working on behalf of the FBI. Garland says the Justice Department will not tolerate any effort to undermine the rights and rule of law that uphold American democracy. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. A woman and a teenage girl are dead and at least seven others injured after a shooting at a St. Louis high school this morning. Police killed the suspect in an exchange of gunfire. Holly Edgel of member station KCUR reports the shooter appeared to be a man in his 20s. Students and teachers streamed out of the Central Visual and Performing Arts High School around 9.30 and made their way around the corner to a local grocery store. There, in the parking lot, many students met up with their parents and loved ones. Heading home with her mother, senior Sarah Lewis was distraught. I heard the banging and the shooting, and I honestly felt like I wasn't going to make it out of there because it was really scary. Central Visual and Performing Arts is a public school with about 700 students. For NPR News, I'm Holly Edgel in St. Louis. Up to 40 million people could benefit from President Biden's plan to cancel billions of dollars in student loan debt. And today, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters that despite legal maneuvering by opponents, the administration intends to continue to move full steam ahead, meaning that despite a temporary appeals court block on the program, Americans should still apply. It merely prevents debt from being discharged until the court makes a decision. The Department of Education will continue reviewing applications and preparing them for transmission to loan services. She says about 22 million people have already applied. The U.K. tomorrow will install its third prime minister in seven weeks, with former Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak winning Britain's Conservative Party leadership race. Sunak is of South Asian descent and will be the U.K.'s first prime minister of color. On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 417 points at 31,499. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A 32-year-old New Hampshire man now faces charges for the 2019 murder of his daughter. Adam Montgomery was arrested today on a second-degree murder charge related to the death of Harmony Montgomery. Harmony disappeared in December of 2019 at the age of five, but was not reported missing for two years. Adam Montgomery has also been charged with moving or concealing his daughter's corpse, as well as witness tampering. He's said to be arraigned tomorrow in Manchester. The population of the critically endangered North Atlantic right whale has fallen once again. Scientists now estimate it stands at 340, the latest indication the whales are edging closer to extinction. As WBR's Barbara Moran reports, fishing industry members are concerned the new numbers could lead to more regulation. Entanglement in fishing gear is one of the leading causes of death for right whales. 
In Massachusetts, lobstermen are already required to use rope that breaks more easily to prevent entanglements. And most state waters close to lobster fishing for about four months a year. Beth Cassoni, executive director of the Massachusetts Lobstermen's Association, calls the existing regulations draconian. It's frustrating. The industry is definitely at its wit's end because how much more can they do when a closure isn't enough? Some whale advocates are calling for the federal government to step in and push a rapid switch to ropeless fishing gear. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Officials with the Massachusetts Department of Transportation say the bike lane on the Massachusetts Avenue Bridge will become permanent after a successful pilot program. Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says construction to make the lane permanent is set to take place over the next several weeks. Our hope is to have this by the end of November, I have everything in place and operational. Uh, One of the things that we've been running into for a lot of our projects recently over the last last year is the availability of materials. So some of that may be dependent on when we can get those things. Gulliver says the permanent bike lane leaves room for dedicated bus areas on either side of the bridge. He estimates the project will cost between $100,000 and $200,000. Massachusetts legislature has sent Governor Charlie Baker a bill that would restrict insurance companies from requiring patients to use cheaper drugs before they would pay for newer, more expensive medications. The measure requires insurers to process so-called step therapy appeals in three business days, or within 24 hours in cases that involve emergencies. Packers of the bill say it gives doctors and patients more control over the kind of medications that are prescribed. And the Baker administration is making nearly $16 million available to nonprofits, communities, and regional planning commissions for community health efforts. The money is intended to be used to address disparities caused by structural racism. Community partners will use the money to better address mental health issues, chronic disease, and aging. In the forecast, overcast, damp, relatively mild this evening and overnight. Tonight, temperatures right about where they are now, 59 degrees. And then for tomorrow, more of the same gray skies, fog, right about 68 degrees, though. For Wednesday, should be about 66 for a high, more rain. Finally, some sunshine, though, on Thursday. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Milwaukee. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Rishi Sunak, Britain's former Chancellor of the Exchequer, will become the country's new Prime Minister. Sunak heads to Number 10 Downing Street following a tumultuous period in which the country has had three Prime Ministers in less than two months. He spoke to lawmakers in his Conservative Party today. The United Kingdom is a great country, but there is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity. Sunak's ascent is history-making. He is the first person of colour to lead the British government, as NPR's Frank Langford reports from London. Sunak is the son of Indian immigrants who moved here from East Africa. At 42, he's also the country's youngest prime minister in more than two centuries. A former hedge fund manager with a degree from Stanford Business School, Sunak seems well-suited to address the country's challenging financial state. Bronwyn Maddox runs Chatham House, the London think tank. If you are reaching for silver linings, one is that the economic plight has forced someone with economic competence to the top of the conservative field. Sunak's political rise has been meteoric. He won a seat in Parliament only in 2015. Five years later, 
He landed the second most powerful job in the government, Chancellor, Britain's Treasury Secretary. During the pandemic, Sunak became a household name when he created a rescue package widely credited with saving thousands of businesses. Today, I can announce that for the first time in our history, the government is going to step in and help to pay people's wages. After Boris Johnson was forced from office last summer, Sunak ran for prime minister against Liz Truss. She called for unfunded tax cuts to help kickstart growth amid rising inflation and energy bills. Sunak said the country needed to start paying off the debt it had accumulated from helping people during the pandemic. Here he is in a debate with Truss. Uh, simply not right. You promised me. almost excuse 40 me. billion pounds of unfunded tax cuts, but 40 billion pounds more borrowing. That is the, company, the country's credit card. It's our children and grandchildren. Everyone here is kids. Truss won and went ahead with her plan. Global financial markets rejected it. The pound collapsed, mortgage rates rose, and Truss resigned. Sunak grew up in a port city in the south of England. In this campaign video, he tells a familiar tale of an immigrant family, though from a professional class. My mum studied hard and got the qualifications to become a pharmacist. She met my dad, an NHS GP, and they settled in Southampton. And, he said, gave him opportunities they could only dream of. Sunak went on to study at Oxford University. In 2009, he married the daughter of one of India's richest men who co-founded an IT giant. Sunak came under fire when it was revealed his wife did not pay taxes on some of her foreign earnings. While perfectly legal, it was awkward given Sunak's job in the government. There has been some backlash to Sunak's run for prime minister. Over the weekend, a caller to LBC, London Talk Radio, questioned his patriotism. Boris has the best chance of winning the general election next time. Rishi's not going to win it. Rishi's not even British. He doesn't love England like Boris does. This is totally false. Born in Southampton, Sunak is extremely British, down to his Savile Row suits. Sundar Katwala, who runs a think tank that studies views around race and identity, says most people do not agree with that caller. And Britons are becoming accustomed to seeing people of color in top government positions. In the last five years, we've seen ethnic minority, chancellors of the Exchequer, home secretaries, foreign secretaries at uh, a remarkable pace. So everyone's got used to that and everybody thinks you shouldn't make too much of that. In one sense, it's remarkable that the descendant of British colonial subjects will become the country's prime minister. But it also seems, as Katwala says, like a natural process. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. The Senate race in Wisconsin is one of a handful that could determine which party controls the U.S. Senate. Over the summer, incumbent Republican Ron Johnson looked vulnerable to a challenge by Democrat Mandela Barnes. But now, polling shows that Barnes is trailing Johnson, with just two weeks to go until Election Day. I sat down with Lieutenant Governor Barnes after a meet-and-greet with Latino voters in Milwaukee. And when I asked him about the momentum in this race, he didn't seem worried. Polls go up and polls go down. The last three November elections were all decided by 30,000 votes or fewer. We always knew this was going to be neck and neck. After that, we dug into the issues, starting with the Supreme Court's decision in June to overturn the constitutional right to an abortion. Well, 70 percent of people in Wisconsin think Roe should be the law of the land. And that's how out of touch and extreme Ron Johnson's position is. And he supported abortion bans that had no exceptions for rape, incest, or the life of the mother. And I've been, you know, my mother has been pretty open about her story, um, having a complicated pregnancy that, you know, she had to end. 
And it was her choice to make. Any woman should be able to make that choice. And Ron Johnson wants to take that away. Ron Johnson's America. My mother, women in very similar situations as her don't get to make that choice. We recently had a black maternal health roundtable where there were a number of women who for the very first time uh, shared their stories about uh, complicated pregnancies, uh, some that had to be terminated. And they had never spoken about it before, but they had a chance to around each other. And also, given the urgency of this moment where we have politicians in office who want to take that choice away, which would have absolutely made their lives even more difficult. And then on top of that, for people who are uh, planning a family, Ron Johnson's against expanding the child tax credit. He is against funding for preschool programs. He's against school meal programs, the things that will make it easier for people to have uh, families that can have some sort of success. He voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And this is a lifeline for families that he wants to take it away. He wants to force people to give birth in a place where he does not want to provide them opportunity. And that's disqualifying. I want to turn now to the economy, which is obviously something that's affecting every person in this country. Inflation has been unrelenting. We have seen the stock market decline. What do you think, if you were elected, what can be done to help families who are feeling the brunt of those issues? Well, there are a couple of things we got to do. One, we got to give working families some relief in the immediate term. That means a uh, middle class tax cut. We can expand the earned income tax credit for our lower wage earners to be able to keep a little bit more money in their pockets. People are struggling to put food on the table. We need to make the child tax credit permanent. And we also need to hold these executives and industries accountable for using inflation as a smokescreen to jack up prices on consumers. Think about uh, the people who are charging the most. These are also the people who are having record years, record profit years. And working class people are paying for that. That's the unfortunate reality that is only going to be exacerbated if people like Ron Johnson are in office because he's only been in it for himself, other wealthy individuals like him, and his biggest donors. In the long term, we need to do more to bring jobs back here. Senator Johnson has focused a great deal of his attention on the issue of crime, and there has been this onslaught of advertising that has labeled you as too liberal on issues of crime and public safety, something that we're seeing in races across the country. As you've watched these ads, what is your reaction to them? And do you believe that they play on racial tropes? Ron Johnson is a hypocrite. Ron Johnson has not done a single thing. I have dealt with the loss of life. I don't, I brought this up on the debate stage, didn't get an answer. I can only assume that Ron Johnson has never had to bury a friend. I can only assume Ron Johnson has not gone to these funerals and memorial services for young children who are victims of gun violence, representing a district in the state legislature that had been significantly impacted by violence. It seemed to be routine to have to do that. Ron Johnson has no idea what he's talking about. He only brings up Milwaukee when he talks about crime, but he's never shown up to try to help. He has prioritized the interests and the profits of the gun lobby over the lives of our children and our public safety. He talk all about all he wants to about law and order and about law enforcement. He was nowhere to be found on January 6th when 140 Capitol Police officers were injured. The people who were there to protect him, he turned his back on law enforcement. He turned his back on all of us. Um, you're about to kick off a big tour of the state soon, and one of the big names that's coming out here to campaign for you is former President Barack Obama. I know he's recently cut an ad for you. I'd like to ask you, would you welcome President Biden to the campaign trail with you in the final days of this race? Well, you've always said from the very beginning, people who are talking about rebuilding the middle class here in Wisconsin is more than welcome to join us. And, you know, 
when I heard Barack Obama's DNC speech in 2004, that's what inspired me to get engaged. That's what led me to become an organizer. So this is a sort of full circle moment for me. But would you campaign with President Biden? Oh, like I said, President Biden, anybody who wants to come talk about rebuilding middle class, we're happy to do it. I mean, we've had a number of people come in state. So Biden is uh, welcome if we're talking about the same exact things. All right, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, thank you so much for talking with us today. Of course, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And just as a note for listeners, we did reach out to Senator Ron Johnson's campaign for an interview, and they did not make him available. A skinny blue and silver can of Red Bull is a go-to for both amped-up athletes and all-night partiers. Red Bull's owner and co-founder Dietrich Mateschitz died over the weekend. He was 78. And as NPR's Andrew Limbong reports, his brand went far beyond energy drinks. Ten years ago, base jumper Felix Baumgartner stood 24 miles above the Earth's surface. Decked out in a white suit, he looked down at the ground and told the control room, I'm going home now. And then he jumped. That day, he became the first man to break the sound barrier during freefall. Millions watched, and when he opened his parachute above New Mexico, it was the Red Bull logo that everyone saw bringing him home. Red Bull started when Austrian businessman Dietrich Mateschitz was traveling in Thailand in the 80s. Jet-lagged, he tried a local drink called Krating Deng, and it picked him up. He tracked down the creator, Chaleo Uvidya, and convinced him to carbonate it and, more importantly, market it out west, which included that famous catchphrase, Red Bull gives you wings. Mateschitz didn't give interviews often, but he talked to journalist Duff McDonald, who told NPR in 2012 about Mateschitz's philosophy behind marketing the drink. And I asked him, I said, what gave you the brass to uh, put a premium price on it out of the gate? And he looked back at me, all deadpan, and he said, how would people know it was a premium product if it didn't have a premium price? The company defined itself by associating with extreme sports and F1 racing and even started its own music label. The marketing plan worked. According to the company, a total of 9.8 billion cans of Red Bull were sold worldwide in 2021. Andrew Limbong, Pure News. You're listening to All Things Considered. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Dr. Mehmet Oz face off in their first and only debate tomorrow. We'll have a preview. And then the rose tattoo that wasn't a tattoo coming up. Funding for WBUR's Business Report comes from Boston University Academy, where high school students pursue their passions as far as they can take them. Virtual open house November 30th. Be curious, be kind, be you at BUA. Online at BUAcademy.org. Stocks picked up today where they left off on Friday. On the rise, the Dow rose one and a third percent, 417 points, to close at 31,500. S&P gained about one and two thirds percent to close at 37.97, and the Nasdaq pulled in 0.86 percent to close at 10,953. Gas prices in Massachusetts continue to trickle down. AAA says the average price of a gallon of unleaded fell two cents in the past week to three dollars fifty-eight cents. It's 620. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Coming to City Space this Wednesday, October 26th, here and now co-host Robin Young interviews former Nickelodeon star Jeanette McCurdy to talk about her new memoir, I'm Glad My Mom Died. Tickets at WBUR.org events.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. The contest for Pennsylvania's open seat in the U.S. Senate is among the closest and most closely watched in the country. It features two very high-profile candidates, Republican Mehmet Oz, better known as the celebrity TV doctor, and Democratic Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who suffered a stroke back in May and only recently resumed a full campaign schedule. Tomorrow, they will hold their only debate. NPR's Don Gon reports. John Fetterman's task as the campaign enters its final weeks is twofold. He must convince voters to support him to help Democrats hang on to their razor-thin majority in the Senate. On top of that, he needs to demonstrate that his recovery from a stroke five months ago is on track and that he's up to the job he's running for. You'll find him doing both on the campaign trail. He still wears his trademark black hoodie and baggy shorts. And do I need to remind you that he's six foot eight, shaved head, arms full of tattoos. Fetterman, who is currently Pennsylvania's lieutenant governor and a former small town mayor, is much thinner than he was pre-stroke. And you can tell he's more careful, less gregarious. He talks about what he calls the elephant in the room. The only lingering issues, if you want to call that, is sometimes I miss words. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes I might. It's a true. It's a true. And sometimes I might mush words together that really doesn't exist, you know? But mostly he does seem like any candidate giving a basic stump speech. This one lasted more than 20 minutes. Molly Levernight, a hospitality worker who's here with her mom, was watching Fetterman closely as he spoke. Yeah, I mean, I don't need him swinging off the rafters. I think he was fine. I I think he was honest. He says, I get words confused. I think he was honest and says, you know, I might miss something here and there, but I I have no problem with that. Just days ago, Fetterman's doctor released a statement saying he's recovering well and has no work restrictions. He describes Fetterman as exhibiting, quote, symptoms of an auditory processing disorder. So as he recovers, Fetterman uses a computer screen that shows him subtitles during interviews to help with what can seem like difficulty hearing. He'll use that same technology during the debate. Both candidates are spending heavily on TV. Oz, who's been endorsed by Donald Trump and who ran as a conservative in the primaries, now portrays himself as a moderate as he attacks Fetterman on crime and inflation. John Fetterman would raise every one's taxes, making inflation that much worse. We need more balance and less extremism in Washington. I'm not a politician. I'm a heart surgeon. Fetterman, meanwhile, is hitting Oz on reproductive rights, saying Oz will vote against access to safe and legal abortion. In this new ad, Fetterman gets help from former President Obama. When the fate of our democracy and a woman's right to choose are on the line, I know John will fight for Pennsylvanians. There is also a marked difference in how these candidates campaign. Fetterman, even as he recovers from a stroke, publicizes rallies in advance. With Oz, it's a much more guarded approach. Oz events are more like this one, with friendly media. Here he is in York, Pennsylvania, with Sean Hannity on Fox News, where Oz makes his pitch to moderate Democrats and suburban voters. 
We believed in the grit of Americans. We believe in America. That is the fundamental difference between me and the far-left radical elements of the Democratic Party. And I think Sean's not- Fetterman, meanwhile, continues to hammer away at Oz as a fraud, as a doctor who sold cure-all supplements on TV, as a candidate who only established residency in Pennsylvania to run for office. Send Dr. Oz back to New Jersey. And send me to DC. Thank you. Fetterman and Oz will debate Tuesday evening in Harrisburg. Fetterman has consistently led in polls, but his once sizable advantage has narrowed considerably. Don Gagne, NPR News. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. These are the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Jackie Briggs met her unsung hero at a women's health conference in 2006. For several years, I'd been working 60-hour work weeks in this high-pressure IT job, and I had very little time for myself. So I really wanted to go and hear this one particular speaker. As a few hundred women milled around different booths, picking up brochures and eating crudités, this lovely, dark-haired woman came up to me and she said, excuse me, but I can't help but notice your arm. I had what my boss later described as what he thought was a rose tattoo. It was on my upper right bicep. And I was uncharacteristically wearing a sleeveless dress that day. Well, this woman, she asked me if I'd seen a dermatologist about this smallish, irregular, almost birthmark-looking spot. And I assured her I had. She pressed me and said, when? And I had to stop to think, and I counted back the months, and uh, no years. It had been over three years. Uh, I was supposed to follow up, but I was so caught up in my job, I never did. The dermatologist's office never reached out to me either, so blah, 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 time moves on. So this woman urged me to call my doctor Monday morning first thing. She explained she was a nurse for a plastic surgeon, and as she gently touched my arm, she said, really, don't wait. And thanks to her, I didn't wait. In the following weeks of doctor's appointments, biopsies, and then the surgery are all a bit of a blur, but because everything moved very fast. But my melanoma was removed, and my six-inch ragged scar that travels Almost from the top of my shoulders down my arm is my everyday reminder of her. If I hadn't listened to her, I probably wouldn't be here. So to my hero, thank you for my life. Jackie Briggs of Portland, Oregon. Jackie says that about two years after that conference and her melanoma surgery, she quit that 60-hour-a-week IT job. She's happily retired, tries to hike about 20 miles a week, and she just finished writing her first novel. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for Unsung Hero comes from Indeed. 
designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be the Boston Celtics versus the Chicago Bulls in Chicago tonight, 8-10 start time. Patriots will play at Gillette Stadium tonight. The Chicago Bears as the opponent. At halftime, the Pats will honor former player and Hall of Famer Richard Seymour. The defensive lineman will be getting his Pro Football Hall of Fame ring. Seymour was inducted into the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio this past summer. Kickoff time for the Pats-Bears game is 8-15. At 7 o'clock tonight, it's On Point, how black Americans fought World War II on two fronts, one against fascism abroad, the other against racism at home. In the forecast, rain off and on, thunderstorms again tonight, the chance of more uh, thunderstorms early tomorrow, and then tomorrow during the day, overnight lows about 58, right about where it is right now. Then for tomorrow, temperatures creeping up to the high 60s. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers.